Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Digam Aurora. Hey, everyone. Nice to have you back. Also joining us is Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Nice to have you back. And also joining us as a first-time participant in the show is Sarah Russo, writer and creator of the graphic novel Herbs for the Apocalypse. Hey, hey. Awesome. And we're very excited to have our first-time guest on the show, Joseph Mays, an ethnobotanist and director of Shakruna's Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular science and news section, we're going to talk about some recent journalistic coverage of psychedelic use in indigenous cultures and questioning how common it was. We'll explore a recent story about a former head of the FDA joining the psychedelic company Cybin, and we'll talk about some new information about cannabis farms and water consumption. We'll then jump into rapid fire science with a peer-reviewed article exploring the therapeutic potential of psilocybin, followed by another peer-reviewed article on the impact of cannabis use on sexual function. We'll then end with a game, uh, and this game will be Name That Drug, where we'll summarize a case report about psychedelics, cannabis, or other commonly used drugs, and you'll have to guess which drug was being used in the case report. All right, we'll be back in about 30 seconds. it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So how common was psychedelic use in indigenous cultures? Vice.com did some recent coverage on this, and Joe, you know, this is sort of your area is exploring, you know, reciprocity. And when we look at these articles that question um, how commonplace psychedelic drug use was in indigenous cultures. You know, I have a concern here, um, you know, that if, you know, say imagine just for the sake of argument, there's a very old culture and they don't use psychedelics, but their ancestral land has preserved a very rare or novel psychedelic in the form of a plant, a fungus, or, or maybe some sort of animal. And then that's being sourced as a, a commercial product. You know, without having documented historical use, does this somehow change the the discussion around reciprocity, um, you know, and I guess that's kind of my concern here that this sort of saying, oh, we don't have good evidence from 10,000 years ago that people use psychedelic mushrooms. Therefore, this changes the discussion about reciprocity and ethics in doing business here. Is, is that a legitimate concern here? Or is this just an intellectual exploration into the history of psychedelic use? Uh, well, I, I like to think it's just the, the latter, but I think it's it's uh, it is a little bit concerning uh, that it could be a way to sort of remove oneself from the from the need to to show reciprocity, but I don't think there's any precedent for it. If you look at drug development, uh, whenever you don't have to show that you've been using it for 
over a thousand years or, or longer to to deserve any claim to intellectual property. I think when when people use herbal remedies, um, I don't know. Maybe you you or Nigga might have more more knowledge about that, but. Um, yeah, there are a few things about the article and the perspective presented that I think uh, I could it, feel free. Yeah. Put, pour, pour it on us, man. Feel free. <laughs> give us, give us fear. Well, well, it does. It falls into a certain category of like internet article, I think, which is kind of like, hey, that thing that you guys like and think is good, actually, it's bad, and this is why, and here's why. Um, and it's a very uh, effective kind of strategy for for pop science articles and and other articles but it's a very superficial view uh i think the writer is obviously not an anthropologist but if they were they would know how wrong many of the statements and assumptions they make in it are uh for example there's a quote that uh <laughs> they use um to sort of talk about how um, how recent the the Icaros are, or the songs that people sing for ayahuasca ceremonies, and they say, um, you know, uh, these songs are sung often in non-Amazonian languages like Quechua or Spanish, and these patterns indicate that ayahuasca hasn't been around for that long, but Quechua is actually an Amazonian language. Uh, it's there, the Quechua runa, one of the most famous uh, for using ayahuasca in, in the Ecuadorian Amazon, they speak a form of Quechua. It is also spoken in the Andes and the Altiplano by the Inca, descendants of the Inca, but uh, it is by no means uh, restricted to that area. And it's, it's an Amazonian language. Ayahuasca itself is a Quechua word, comes from, uh, from Quechua. So does Chacruna, which is the other component of the brew. And I think that just the, the complexity of the brew itself is a testament to how long it must have been around. Um, but it is, uh, it's interesting. Like for, for me, um, when I was in the field, uh, the group I worked with, the Yanesha actually have a song about ayahuasca, although they don't use ayahuasca. So this is a, a mark of, of a historical relationship that they had they don't have any living shamans or guanenderos in the community now, but there's a song all about ayahuasca that everybody sings. Um, and, you know, the, it just, there are so many examples of that in, in Amazonia and, and indigenous communities that have been, for historical reasons, cut off from a lineage uh, that they may have had a connection to in the past or from traditions and, and uses of plants but at the same time i don't think we have to to show this historical ancient connection in order to um understand why reciprocity is important and why it's uh, necessary and and all of our products are, are extracted from nature so there has to be some reciprocity there uh regardless but yeah, I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in, but uh, that's thank you so much, Joe, for that overview. I think it's really important, and you know, it's one of the things I'm hearing is it almost seems that like it's almost a simpler line of reasoning to say cultures, societies, indigenous populations have been using these for a long time. Um, you know, there's some research out there that talks of the importance of 
mysticism and religious feelings were creating social hierarchies and the role that psychedelics could have played in inducing those feelings and you know having feelings of mysticism and religion must be important for survival else else it probably wouldn't have evolved <laughs> over time um but you know, sarah russo i wanted to um you know maybe go to you um you know in your research for your your graphic novel you know you, did you encounter um any sort of historical use of psychedelics that kind of surprised you so the graphic novel is set in a more modern context, and I, for various reasons, didn't include the use of master plants. Um, but reading this article was very interesting, and Joe brought up some really great points. Um, some things I was thinking about is that, for example, I don't want to hold on to a romantic narrative that isn't true. But for me, when I was reading this article, there was some, somewhat of a disconnection of the observer and these groups. So... You know, if someone goes into these areas and they're studying it, the culture, studying the plants, they're not going to get that real perspective. They're not going to really understand what it's going to be like to actually live this lifestyle to really work with these plants. That came to mind for me. Um, also, um, I'm just going to venture a guess that some of these cultures and traditions um, might be an oral history as opposed to a written history. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, it's not like the Shipibos marked down on a Gregorian calendar. Oh, you know, however many thousands of years ago we started using ayahuasca. So um, I think it's important to kind of think about the context in which we frame this. And also in my research, I found, you know, for example, I was also thinking about in this article, the difference between psychoactive plants and medicinal plants, because I don't really want to differentiate them. But for example, there are long histories of use in China of not plant medicine specifically, but herbal formulations that are thousands of years old. Like there's a formulation called, you know, translated to free and easy wander. That's a thousands of year old formulation of different mix of plants. So there's that. And, you know, I can think of a couple different examples again in China where cannabis was used um, as incense burners in ancient funeral rites. Um, and that was based on carbon dating. So, I mean, you could say that's illegitimate, but I, I would say no. And also I can think of an example of San Pedro. There have been carving, stone carvings dating back to, you know, thousands of years ago that depict the cactus and also Spanish colonizers in the you know 1600s had mentioned that these people were using diabolical plants and you know talking about that so um you know i think that there are examples of especially in areas in the amazonian regions where the use of ayahuasca is newer and people are bringing it into these areas um that's happening in some places where that that plant has, or these plants haven't been used historically. Um, but that's not to say that these people haven't been using these plants for a very long time. For example, certain types of tobacco plants have been used for a very long time, as well as Brugmansia species. Um, so, you know, I think we have to think about the context. And yeah, I always want to think about the intention of why these articles are written and what would be the point in trying to 
say that it wasn't ancient use. I just don't know the point. I, I like what you said about the Gregorian calendar. I imagine some Aztec like chiseling in a date took five mushrooms on this calendar date. Like, you know, it was probably, you know, we have to also think about dosing and context of use. Um, but Sarah, Sarah Jane, before we jump to the next article, I just wanted to get your response to this sort of coverage about psychedelics. And I know that in sometimes designing basic research or even clinical studies, historical use can play a role in how you, you know, investigate these compounds. Um, so I just want to kind of get your thoughts on this article and, you know, does it influence your excitement to study psychedelics to know whether or not there's a, you know, historical use going back a hundred years or 10,000 years? Yeah, I guess you sort of hit the nail on the head for the, the part of the article that interested me. And that was this notion, you know, and, and, you know, I definitely defer to the experts on, you know, evidence for and against what the, the article was claiming. Um, but the, the, you know, the statement that stood out to me was that it is appealing um, to um, give some of these, you know, like psychedelic therapies, a long traditional history in with indigenous peoples, because that's going to make it more appealing or palatable as a potential um, therapeutic, because it's more natural, uh, more wholesome. The article says perhaps more spiritual. Um, and anyone who's listened to this podcast before might know that, you know, those kind of statements really irritate the crap out of me that, that, that people would try to use the argument that it's going to make a good medicine because it's from nature. You know, for thousands of years, we've used natural products as poisons to kill each other. Um, it's interesting and there's a lot to learn from it, but something being natural doesn't de facto make it a more appealing medicine for, from my perspective, scientifically. So that that would disappoint me, I guess, to think that someone would try to use the allure of ancient use of a product to try to win hearts and minds over, um, you know, as, as opposed to really just seeing, all right, here's a potential. I've, I love all the psychedelic research that's going on right now. And there are many, many reasons, I think, to get excited about it and promote it. And for me, it doesn't have to be because people have done it for thousands of years. You know, that's a great point, Sarah. And speaking of getting excited about appealing and palliative therapies with psychedelics, uh, Nigam, I'm sure you saw the news in Forbes, or, or the next article we're going to discuss about the former head of you know psychiatry products at the, at the FDA has joined Cybin, um, you know, the psychedelic drug company. And so I kind of want to get your thoughts on this article from Forbes about the former FDA joining the psychedelic drug developer, Cybin. Big news, kind of big news. Is everyone going to hire FDAers now? I mean, I thought everyone but me hated the FDA. Why hire them? <laughs> Is it just to get more efficient clinical trials conducted? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, several thoughts. I, I don't know uh, him personally, but I think it's great. Uh, I think that... Um, what we'll read in an article a little bit later in this third psychedelics renaissance that we're in. Um, I think that's great because 
for so so there's multiple ways that psychedelics are coming to people in this new renaissance right we have the organ model or state regulated um, non-fda thing that's great uh we have the FDA path with companies like Cybin and Compass and MindMetter chasing. Uh, and if their end goal works out and it helps people, that's great too. So um, really, uh, my big thing is that whatever route companies are taking is that they're mindful uh, and that they're operating it in a way that is going to be good for the patient in the end. So... Like I said, I, I don't I don't know this person personally, but um, just the the facet of uh, his you know career record uh, and the fact that I think for the last like six or eight years he's actually been running his own consultancy, helping companies do exactly this, just not in psychedelics. Um, it, I think it bodes well. Um, and then uh, just so far as leaders in the field. It's. I mean, if you're following your research, if you're following the, the clinical studies uh, going on and being planned, if you're following uh, the drive to, uh, say, enhance uh, some of the positive effects of these molecules uh, without suffering from some of the potential negative effects, I think Cybin is a leader in all those areas. So, um, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, I, I didn't say anything wrong with it, at least from the perspective that, that I was sharing. But I'm curious what uh, others on the in the group think. Yeah, um, you know, Joe, you know, you have a lot of experience. You know, like I said, with Shakruna and dealing with these two different worlds of, you know, um, indigenous use of these products, um, as well as you know, business entities trying to work with indigenous groups, and I wonder. If having you know someone at the head of the FDA might be a good sign because they're very much you know weighing ethics in research. Um, so I, know, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on this. Do you see this as a good trend in terms of you know companies designing well thought out studies, studies that meet a very high standard of regulatory approval? Um, you know, and so I just kind of want to get your thoughts on this. Do you think more companies? should hire former FDA people so that they're doing everything, you know, IRB approval, you know, review board approval um, and things like that to move things along and make sure they're co co collecting the right type of data. Yeah. I, I don't think I want to put a value judgment on, on it as whether it's good or bad. I think it's just a natural progression, uh, especially as things become more commodified. It's just a sign of the, the way that, the business is moving and uh i think it was inevitable uh and it reminds me of some some of what rick doblin when he talks about his changing perspective on the fda over over the years he was he used to be very you know countercultural and and anti-government but you know now he's testifying before the fda and he's working with them to try to get mdma uh, assisted therapy approved uh, full disclosure, Cybin is uh, donating to the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative, uh, and I think their clinical officer, uh, Dr. Alex Belser, has worked with Chakuna before uh, in our Women, Gender, Diversity, and Sexual Minorities Working Group. So I think he's really brilliant. Uh, and I think another thing is like the the businesses that contribute to this initiative, uh, for example, I, I don't think. It's about endorsing all of their practices. Of course, I disagree with a lot of business models, uh, and I disagree with the with 
the United States government as well, but like, I'm still going to apply for funding grants and, um, I'm still going to work with and within the system. So yeah, I don't think it's a bad sign or, or a good sign, but it's to, uh, to the listener who can't see our faces right now, there's a lot of nodding going on from everyone when Joe said that thing about the government. That was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, we, it's a love-hate relationship uh, with, with the government. And, you know, Sarah, someone who fills out a lot of grants and is funded by the government, um, you know, does this type of announcement legitimize psychedelic research for you more? Or is this, you know, like, you know, neither good or bad, just par for the course? Um, you, you know, will you be using this announcement in a future grant application saying, hey, former FDA people are helping with the psychedelic drug pipeline clearly we need more basic research here yeah i think um the the statement that i pulled out um that really hit home to me that speaks to sort of my thoughts on cannabis and cannabinoids as medicines um was uh, a statement by Belser, psychedelic medicines don't fit neatly into the old models for how drugs are studied, reviewed, and approved, says Belser. We brought together experts to help us work within existing clinical and regulatory frameworks while realizing that psychedelics require innovative methods and a new approach. Uh, I you know, totally agree with that statement in regards to cannabinoids um, as well. So I think from my point of view, I guess... I would see it as a positive if this person's FDA experience gives weight to companies pursuing these avenues for psilocybin or for cannabinoids to help the FDA change their perspective and approaches to treating natural products um, as medicines um, and not vice versa, where the company gets you know, altered by having some sort of FDA, you know, influence upon it. Uh, And I, you know, I just think that hopefully as we, you know, increasingly are more serious about using cannabis and psychedelics as medicines, we figure out the, you know, the best ways, sort of like what Joe said, you know, the ways that people are going to do it, let's, let's get it done the best ways possible. So if, if, you know, a company's desire is to go through the FDA, let's make it the most realistic and sensical process for whole plants, which is, you know, just drastically different from approval of, of our drugs in the past. Thank you, Sarah. I, I agree. Um, you know, with, with your statement, um, Sarah Russo, you know, before we go to the next study, I just want to get your response maybe to some of uh, our other participants' comments or maybe to this article. Um, you know, are you skeptical of this announcement as window dressing? Uh, do you wish more companies working with natural products would hire, you know, expert officials? <laughs> what's, your, what's your take on this Forbes article? Yeah, uh, for me, I'm quite skeptical, not to say that I don't think that there should be specialists who are well um, respected in certain fields that come in to do research and development in an emerging emerging industry. However, I always wonder about, you know, I think this is very much kind of the situation that happens with cannabis, 
um, is now that there are more pharmaceutical preparations being created. Um, and I always, I know that that's kind of a paranoid uh, kind of thought process that a lot of cannabis advocates have is, oh, they're going to take away our right to be able to use, you know, craft cannabis or grow your own. Um, why I think that could potentially be the case, I think it's a little bit overblown. Um, but I always wonder with these more standardized preparations that would be available in the pharmaceutical realm, um, how they would keep in mind, you know, the entourage effect of fungal species or cannabis chemovars and things like that. So that was something that came to mind for me. Um, however, you know, for example, we're going to need standardized products. <laughs> That's going to have to happen. Um, and I always give the example of people in the cannabis industry who are very apprehensive about pharmaceutical preparations. You wouldn't be able to give a CBD uh, IV to someone in the hospital if it was made from, you know, Joe Schmo's backyard cannabis. So I think that there is a place to have the pharmaceutical world and also the craft world. Um, but I just want to ensure that there's room for all capacities in that regard. Um, and I think that there's something to say for cannabis and psychedelics where, you know, some Western use of these herbs um, and fungus had, and other plants have been kind of from the fringe, fringes. Um, and so I think that there's a certain integrity of that um, that needs to be preserved. Um, you wouldn't want to limit people who have used this for a long time to be able to access it. So um, that's just my initial thoughts with that. Thank you, Sarah. So, you know, I, I think it's an interesting discussion about, um, you know, restrictions that may come about from federal drug approval and standardizing these products balanced with people's traditional access to these? And, and how do you balance that? But you know, Sarah Jane, I, I'd like you to, do you have a response to that? Yeah, I think a lot of what Sarah was saying were things that I was also thinking about in reading it. And it, what it made me think of is this other thought, and it also ties into the next article we're going to talk about, is why, what is a company's motivation to get an FDA-approved drug. You know, I've, so I've spent the last decade studying CBD. Um, I have re scientific reasons why I would like to see drug development around CBD based on some, you know, rational scientific reasons having to do with bioavailability or, you know, this or that. Um, I, but what I also see are some companies making up reasons to make a new formulation for a particular reason. Um, you know, one of the interesting things around FDA approval and drug discovery in this space is patents. And I think that's another big issue that we all need to wrap our heads around. If you can't patent it, you can't make money off of it. So how does that relate to, you know, bringing these kind of drugs forward from companies, FDA approval. Uh, so I just wanted to mention, I just, I really totally agree with everything that Sarah said about that. And I'll come around to another thought related to that when we get to the next article, but thanks for letting me just chime in again. No, uh, great, great comments. Um, but we're going to, as you said, we're going to move on to our next article. Um, and this comes from the Times standard and it's about 
cannabis farms are not perhaps as thirsty as we previously thought. So having been in the cannabis space for about over 15 years, you know, even before, back when I was just a wee researcher, there was still this debate going on about how much water do cannabis cultivation operations use, whether legal or illicit. It's just, oh, they're using so much water, so much water. Uh, but it turns out that a recent study from the University of California, Berkeley, according to this article, found that permitted cannabis farms are consuming way less water than previously thought. Um, you know, Nigam, you have you know a background in cannabis as well, both in real world and in chemistry. Were you surprised about this article or you just think, you know, was this data a long time coming? And I know that water use between farms is, is highly variable because cannabis cultivation isn't quite as standardized as, you know, other agricultural crops. But it seems uh, that this article is suggesting that cannabis uses about as much water as tomato plants. Yeah, um, I was really happy when I saw this included in the show notes. And uh, I actually do have some uh, experience in this area. So a little background. Um, when I first uh, started working on the ground in California in 2018, um, uh, I was working with some folks who had outdoor farms in Humboldt. So uh, Humboldt's obviously a place where the natural beauty is it's just part of the the life there part it's it's you know so there's some places like i'm sitting in san francisco right now you know it's it's nice outside but it doesn't hit you so hard like every moment you open your eyes as like the natural beauty is when you're in humble you know so um anyways um there's there's a big part of the culture there for responsible farmers who have been doing it outdoor uh for years and years and who care about the environment and also care about the cannabis that they had to, you know, find responsible ways to use water and, and to store it and all this stuff. So um, uh, in line with that experience uh, in 2019, um, I actually uh, supported one of my colleagues in giving a presentation at the National Fisheries and Wildlife Conference uh, in Reno that they have every year about specifically this type of topic, about water usage and cannabis, the different type of cannabis plants, uh, the way that cannabis plant limits like they have in some Pacific Northwest states influence the way people grow plants, the efficiency in which those plants use water. So um, one thing is that not all cannabis plants are equal. So, um, and not all watering methods are equal. So anyways, uh, that was just a little background to the, to the article itself. Um, uh, Jehan, I do like what you're saying where they're comparing the amount of water that a cannabis plant uses to that of a tomato plant, which nobody's griping about tomatoes being grown, right? There's also a comparison here where, um, excuse me, they uh, refer to um, one almond farm in the Central Valley using as much water as all of the cannabis farms in Humboldt and Mendocino combined. Now, all, all of the permitted farms. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. Let's be fair. That's that's only eight thousand or so, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, uh, we could we could address this later. The number of permitted, like the ratio of like far. Let's say pre legalization. The number of farms to then when you have this delineation of licensed legal farms versus non licensed legal farms. Watching how the ratios have changed over time, it's like pretty interesting. And there's not 
as many licensed farms as you might think. Like making that leap has still been a significant hurdle for one reason or another to a lot of people. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to hog the mic too much, but uh, I did want to speak to a couple other quick points. Uh, one is uh, there's a few folks in here who uh, I've worked with personally in this article. So uh, Natalie DeLapp from Humboldt County Growers Alliance uh, is great, uh, as well as um, Dr. Uh, Van Butzik from uh, Berkeley uh, is really great. And they're both doing a lot of positive things in this environmental realm. So if folks are interested in this, I'd recommend for them to check out Humboldt County Growers Alliance uh, and check out uh, uh, Dr. Butzik's research out of Berkeley on these environmental topics. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to share is um, an example of a farm in Humboldt that does it really well is um, uh, Winterborn Farms, uh, which is... Um, it, I don't know. It's like a it's like a half acre farm or so, uh, maybe a quarter acre, half acre. Uh, pretty normal size for a licensed outdoor farm up there. And what they do is there's a, a river running immediately next to the farm, but they don't take water from the river. Uh, you could have drilled a well. They're saying in the article a lot of people drilled wells. They didn't drill a well. Uh, what they did is they dug a really big rainwater collection pond. And all winter, when it rains, and, and in that season when they're not even really growing cannabis because it's just so rainy and hard to deal with, they're collecting water all winter. And then they run two or three cycles with depth houses, and uh, they use all their own water. They'll grow hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of legally compliant cannabis plants using water they collected and they're not taking out of the river. They're not taking out of the aquifer. So um, I, I always thought that was such a good example. And, uh, and that was some of what we were presenting on at that uh, environmental conference. I mentioned this sustainable and reasonable way to grow outdoor cannabis in Northern California. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Nigam, part of your point um, that makes these numbers a little hard to um, comprehend, but one of the important factors I think is that, um, permitted farms, according to the author of this article, tend to be much larger than unpermitted farms. So um, right away, if we can look at permitted farms, the numbers are probably not as extreme as we think in terms of how much water is being used, because this data is coming from legal, large-scale commercial production, not you know small illicit farms. Um, so if it's eight, you know at scale, uh, I think that's a really good sign. And Sarah Russo, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this because I know you spent a lot of time in California, you know, in Santa Rosa, the Humboldt area. You've worked with like Project CBD. You've um, been, you know, in the cannabis space uh, in and out for a while as you're doing your herbal research. But, um, you know, in your experience, um, did you always feel that, you know, cannabis plants were using a lot of water or a little bit of water? How thirsty are cannabis plants in your experience? Good question. Um, well, the idealist in me, it will say, I think we can always do better. Cannabis is a weed, you know? So actually I was pretty surprised the one time I cultivated cannabis and was surprised at how much care it needed. Um, but I would say that generally speaking, cannabis cultivators are doing so within the framework of our current agri agricultural paradigm. So that is founded upon unsustainable means of cultivation. Um, and so I want to give a shout out to all the regenerative cannabis agricultural growers out there 
who are actually implementing other plants into their cannabis grows. So for me, it's really odd to go into a space and see only one plant growing because monocultures do not exist in nature. So what they'll do is one of the many techniques is to plant cover crops. So things like comfrey, stinging nettle, clover, they can all be used to cover the soil around the cannabis plants in order to retain more water. Um, and then rainwater catchment systems and things like that are ways to preserve water. So I think in places, especially like California, that are always facing drought, it's important to conserve water as much as possible. Um, it is important to really be aware of how much water they're using. So I appreciate this research, but I always want to be pushing the edge towards more conservation and more sustainable means of, of cultivation. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. And before um, I read this article, you know, there were some studies, at least theoretical studies on how different regulatory models affect water use and, you know, plant number limits versus plant canopy size limits like square footage actually could have potentially drastic impacts on how people use water. Because if you only grow a few plants, you're probably going to water the heck out of them and grow them really big, um, you know, versus having a canopy size or a square footage rule. So I think that would be an important factor to, um, you know, to look at. Um, so, uh, you know, Joe, I want to kind of get your response, just, you know, high level. Does this issue of water use, has this come up before in, you know, in your work with Shakruna or as an ethnobotanist? Are, are you surprised that, you know, some of the issues around cannabis and water use may have been overblown? <laughs> What's your sort of take on this article? Uh, I appreciate a lot of what Sarah shared. I think I have a, actually have a background in, in regenerative agriculture and permaculture, and I've been a farmer in the past and uh i think yeah like like sarah was saying this the cannabis agricultural industry is going to have all the same and recreate all the same issues that the agriculture industry does and with other crops so people are growing cannabis as a monoculture and they're using industrial pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and and they're introducing you know, uh, industrial fertilizers, it's going to cause the same ecological problems that it would with any other crop. So I think it, there's a parallel with the psychedelic industry. It's, it's, uh, you know, I, I was at an event called psychedelic capital recently. And, um, is, is the fact that it's the psychedelics industry going to make it different than other industries or is this, are the same patterns of capital accumulation and, and all the the problems that we all are aware of with capitalism, they're just going to be recreated, but with psychedelics, or is it, is there something inherently different about it because it's, it's dealing with these substances or, or in this case, cannabis instead of other monocultures? I think, no, uh, it, it, it has to be done differently. And, um, the, you know, agroforestry is, as Sarah was saying, or, or permacultures, other people call it just the integrated systems with, with um, polycultural um, plots. And um, I think another thing that this article reminded me of is uh, the bees, which, which also plays into the almond uh, industry in California and how harmful the, this diet of just almond trees is on, on bee colonies. But I, I've read some articles about cannabis that show how good uh, hemp nectar is for bees and how it strengthens their immune system. And it's like really, really good uh, 
for bee populations. Um, so I think there is something special about cannabis as a, as a crop, but it's definitely, I think. I have to get a hold of some of that hemp nectar. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Um, uh, Nigga, you know, before we go uh, end this section with Sarah Jane's comments, I just want to give you a chance to respond because I know you have a lot of thoughts about water use and, you know, a fair amount of real world experience in California. Yeah, I was just going to, a uh, couple other items on the mind. And and so I had complimented the article and, and the work being done by uh, some folks I, I know that were quoted, but uh, I did want to bring up one uh, small weakness in the article uh, just as, as a fundamental scientist by training is that they keep saying like, we're comparing one almond farm of unknown size to all the licensed farms in Mendocino and Humboldt of an unknown number and unknown plant quantities, right? So, um, and it is saying we're comparing a cannabis plant to a tomato plant. What kind of cannabis plant? Where? How, how many grams did it weigh when you cut it down and dried it? You know, I don't know. How tall was it? How big was the stock? I don't know. So, um, what was the yield? What was the yield of flour compared to the mass of non-flour? Anyways, none of these like metrics that you could break down and compare one to one apples to apples were really listed. So on a, te- on a technical level, that's something that I would like to see. Um, I think that's such a great point name. Cause here we're, we're literally comparing trees to weeds, like something you cut down every three months to something that has roots that go super deep, might be seven feet tall, right? Like yeah. these are two different organisms with two different requirements. So maybe it's yeah. not a fair comparison. And uh, maybe hops would be a better comparison with cannabis because not only are they closely related, but you know, you, you harvest both. It was one of those things where like, theoretically the article, I agreed with it and I liked it. And then, but on the specifics on the numbers, I I wanted to see some more detail, a couple other super quick things. The point you were making Jayhan about a literal tree versus as uh, Sarah Rousseau mentioned, you know, a literal weed um, is uh, when you grow these trees, like they do in the Pacific Northwest because of the plant limit, there is a significantly larger amount of water that you have to put in. And it's literally just because it has to feed uh, a trunk. I mean, you can grow cannabis plants to the size of trees well beyond seven feet tall. So when they do that, the consumption goes up a lot is what the data shows. When you are comparing apples to apples, those large uh, plants do consume more water. The last point I wanted to make is um, this thing about them saying that the licensed grows are usually bigger than the unlicensed grows. Um, okay. In Mendocino and at Humboldt, uh, where people are growing these uh, in hidden locations and, and to some degree, maybe uh, I think there are also sizable illegal grows. The thing that uh, really made me want to speak to this was that recently there was news of the largest ever cannabis related uh, drug enforcement action in LA County. $1.19 billion of cannabis, supposedly. Now, I often think they inflate these numbers, but um, I'm just speaking to, it's not like they're saying the licensed farms are on average a quarter acre and the illegal grows are smaller. But what I'm saying is in other parts of California, there are certainly people growing acres on acres on acres on acres of illegal cannabis, and they're stealing water from farmers. They're stealing water from the aquifer. Uh, so that that is an issue. I, I didn't want to just... I, I wanted to highlight that, that it's not like, oh, the illegal grows are only small. You know, they, so it is I, an issue. I think that that's an important point to make is the geography, the local environment, 
um, and other factors. You know, so you may not be able to compare Humboldt to to LA. I mean, as a California native, Northern and South, you know, Southern California people are very different in, in their approach to life in general. Um, let's see, <laughs> but, in the in yeah. the size at which they put up illegal growths, right? Apparently. Yes. So <laughs> one of the many differences. Um, so, uh, Sarah Jane, just wanted to get your you know sort of closing thoughts on the article. You know. Does reading a study like this, you're thinking like, oh, great, I'm going to put some hemp in my garden since I won't have to water it as much as I thought. Well, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But <laughs> um, yeah, no, like I said, it was a bizarre connection for me reading this article and tying back to what I mentioned in response to Sarah's comments. Um, I, I reviewed a grant this past year um, from a small company one of many small companies proposing to make a synthetic CBD. And of course, in all of these small business grants, the company provides a rationale for why their new version of CBD or something else is needed and better. And they spent a lot of precious page space talking about a reduction in environmental harm that is caused by hemp farming. And they talked a lot about water usage. Um, it wasn't a persuasive grant for me, not knowing much about that area, but I just, it sounded like a stretch. Um, and so just, you know, reading this article was very interesting from that perspective. And again, brings me back to, you know, we have to, I think, be very vigilant about the different rationales that companies are coming up with to make new formulations of, you know, cannabinoids or psychedelics. Like I said, I have my short list of what I feel scientifically are some good reasons to do it. Um, but the, the drive to do that just to get patent protection to make money off of a product and get it FDA approved. Yeah. I think that there's, there's going to be some stronger reasons and some some weaker reasons. So that was that was interesting to me in, in reading this article and learning a little bit more about the environmental impact of growing cannabis. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought up um, the environmental impact in general. Um, and you know, in the East Coast, there's been a section in a lot of cannabis license applications to assess your water use and environmental impact. And I've got to review some of those, and some of them are like, we found a way to grow cannabis without water or like we're only going to use five microliters a day or like you know they make these extreme claims without data and, and i'm so glad there's more data just on this that can be included to help you know people suss out reality from science fiction um so but speaking of reality and science um this wraps up our popular literature coverage and we'll be back after a short break with rapid fire science Director of Marketing at Berkeley Patients Group. 
BPG is the nation's longest running dispensary located in Berkeley, California. We offer senior, veteran, and referral discounts, as well as everyday low prices like our famous $1 items. We give back to the Bay Area through our One Million for Good initiative that supports 10 nonprofits working to uplift our community. You can learn more about us by visiting mybpg.com. We're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. Our first article today is from the Journal of Molecules and is entitled The Therapeutic Potential of Psilocybin. And listener, if you'd like to play the home game, a link to this article is in the show notes. So this article is a very long 30-page article covering so many cool things about psilocybin. Um, the authors even had a rationale for why they chose to review this drug. Um, but as our resident expert in drug studies, I think Sarah Jane, you know, you you teach, you study, you do animal models, and I know that you are interested in studying psychedelics. What was something that stood out to you about this article? Yeah, I, I love this article, and I, I thank you for selecting it. Again, as someone who's coming from the cannabis field and still learning a lot and relatively new to psychedelics, it's an excellent overview um, into sort of the the research history, what we've learned and when we've learned it, what the evidence is. Um, and of course, for me, that my interest um, in the pharmacology of you know where these molecules are working in the body, I was very interested in the list of indications that people have been looking at, and of course the the majority of those uh, revolve around anxiety and depression, and um, end of life care and sort of the stress and trauma of um, you know reaching the your known end of life, and and so you know one thing I thought of and one thing that I've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past in relation to the psychedelics is my desire to know the distinction between, is it the hallucinogenic experience of these drugs that make them therapeutic or is it the straight pharmacology of these drugs? Is it the serotonin system and these biochemical changes um, that these drugs may do that make them therapeutic or is that distinction totally false? And it's, you know, those are just two different ways that different types of people measure, you know, the same overall effect of using psychedelics. So I wonder if there's a little bit of a bias to date in the types of indications that people are looking for with psychedelics, with the assumption that it would will be best or only suited to treat um, mood disorders or other kinds of psychiatric things. Um, so we, we talked in the past that there's a potential for these compounds to also be anti-inflammatory, which I think will be a very exciting novel avenue that you know I'm considering um, taking in my lab. And of course, um, pain, which uh, you know the majority of my research with cannabinoids in my laboratory is on pain. 
So I find that- I'd like to ask you about pain because maybe this is your bias. Uh, (laughs) And what I mean by that is, is if we think about mental health issues, let's say PTSD, trauma, maybe the trip or psychedelic experience is important for unpacking that in a therapeutic session, just conceptually speaking. But if you have a pain in your foot, why do you need a psychedelic experience for six to eight hours? Is the same mechanism, you know, is that going to relieve the pain? Is that kind of what you're hinting at? Like, let's think about these conditions. Like if you just need to relieve inflammation from twisting your ankle, you know, um, why not just sit with your foot elevated for six, eight hours versus tripping for six to eight hours? Um, is that kind yeah, of no, exactly, exactly. And that's why I think the unpackaging the pharmacology more will be fascinating. Um, you know, we've known for decades that the serotonin pathway is heavily involved in pain regulation and our descending inhibitory pain pathway relies on serotonin. Yet from a drug discovery perspective, we haven't gotten very far with targeting the serotonin system for the alleviation of pain, except the discovery that uh, SSRIs and other antidepressants are actually one of our most effective tools at treating neuropathic pain. And I remember when that first came to be, there was uh, some discussion that at the time annoyed me that, oh, well, that's because pain is in these, it was around fibromyalgia and this sort of debate is fibromyalgia, a real pain condition, or is it, you know, some sort of emotional thing. So when antidepressants came out as effective, I was like, oh no, (laughs) you know, sort of here we go. But, you know, hearkening back to that, I, I am interested in what I see moving forward is an a discovery of whether there's a separation and say psychedelics turn out to be effective pain treatments. Can we learn from that, that there's a novel way that psychedelics are tapping into the serotonin system, or is there a novel way in which the hallucinogenic properties of psychedelics are successful at treating pain? Or like I said, I, I, my belief is the answer will be stop trying to separate out those two things. And what can that tell us about taking a multi multifaceted approach to both pharmacologically and non-pharmacologically try to treat more conditions? So I, I think it's just going to be a springboard to a, a really revolutionary field of, of research that is going to change some of our basic um, you know, perceptions or misconceptions. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Cause some types of pain might be your relationship with the pain and, and how you perceive it. Because we know that pain, depression, and, you know, general health, these things can be linked. And, you know, if people can manage their pain more effectively, take less opioids um, and these experiences from psychedelics can offer those opportunities. I think it is worth exploring um, regardless of what you think about taking the trip out of tripping, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Joe, I wanted to go to you, uh, and get, you know, did you have a favorite part of this article, you know, as an ethnobotanist, um, I imagine you might've liked the, some of the history. Um, did you like the, the, the section on synthesis of psilocybin? Was there, you know, did you have a favorite section of this article? Uh, I, it's hard to pick a favorite, but yeah, I do. I do love the uh, 
organic chemistry. Um, that was like one of my favorite classes. Everyone hated it, but I, I loved it in, in college. And um, I love looking at molecular diagrams and learning about all the different mechanisms. Um, and yeah, sometimes I get more caught up in the, in the cultural side of, of it, but I'm very fascinated by the other side as well. Uh, I think, yeah, a lot of what Sarah Jane said um, resonated with me, especially about like false distinctions. Um, I think it, it, it goes back to the first article we talked about, this distinction between nature and culture is something that we're imposing on, on other other communities and groups that don't have that same distinction or even the distinction between psychoactive and non-psychoactive plants. Like what is really going on when we take medicine? Um, it's, it's, they all affect the biological, the psychological and the social aspect of our beings. And all of those are interconnected and interacting all the time. So I think Gabor Mate has, has written a little bit about that connection between certain disorders, ADHD, but also inflammation, even gut inflammation and, and the way that it's connected to your mind. And, um, there's no need to really separate them. Um, when we're talking about the, the way that these drugs work. Um, and there's actually an article cited in this article, although they don't really talk about it much it, dealing with placebo. And um, it's an article by Ido Hartogson. I think he's got like a, a Northern European name. I can't say, but the, yeah, the placebo effect is fascinating because if we can have these experiences from an exogenous substance, it begs the question, is there an endogenous substance in our brains that could be made? You know, we, we, the only evidence for DMT being naturally made comes from, I think, like rat pineal glands or something like that. It's a little hard to get you know, permission to grind up human brains. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, you know, that's some, a little bit of what I'm hearing from what you're saying, Joe. Yeah, I think it, it goes beyond substances even because uh, it goes into just the theory behind why psychedelics are even effective at treating so many different disorders that are so so different um, from you know ADHD to depression to OCD to uh, even chronic pain a lot like like we were talking about pain um, and I think David Mormon and Ido both have uh, worked on this idea of meaning response and changing the name of placebo to meaning response because the idea of placebo if you look at any study for any drug there's always a few people that got all the effects of the drug without taking the drug and what was going on there and so there is something about our biology that that if you create the right conditions it, it can heal and uh there's also some work by gold Olin who who did the study with octopuses and, and MDMA, um, where they talk about the critical period, uh, which is what psychedelics open up, which allows for that plasticity and that malleability of the brain. And then that leads to physical healing, which doesn't necessarily have a connection to a specific substance that healed that problem. Uh, and yeah, I, I like the, the kind of optimistic note that Sarah Jane ended on, that this is just like there's so much potential for how this is going to change our understanding of health in general, but, um, and, and just the way that these medicines work. Absolutely. And seeing it summarized in all these tables is, is really cool. And, um, 
Nigam, I want to get your response in a second, but first I just want to share table four on additional acute and long-term subjective effects of psilocybin administration, which include things like tempered politically authoritarian views, increase in personality domain of openness, um, pro-environmental behavior. I'd like to see that on a warning label for a product, like warning, this product that treats depression may cause pro-environmental behavior. See a bunch of people in the middle of the country being like, oh my God. Um, but it also talks about positive changes in personality and increased altruism with the note, this may in turn have wider benefits to society and the global environment. But uh, Nigam, I kind of wanted to get your response to some of the stuff, not necessarily to table four. That's just what spoke to me in this article as sort of a standout, um, just to just to their thoroughness in compiling all this information. Yeah, um, I can certainly speak to that a little bit. Um, there are so many great tables in this. I'm just going to like run through kind of as you were, Jahan, some of them. So, uh, uh, without being redundant. So table one, uh, they're listing um, disease states or conditions that are being explored for treatment with psilocybin. And I mean, I'm not going to read this whole table, but I mean, it's pretty extensive. Cocaine addiction, tobacco addiction, nicotine addiction, opioid addiction, cannabis dependence, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, psychological distress, uh, 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 adjustment disorder with anxiety, which lists a ton of, you know, subsections or, or i'm sorry i said that wrong but the the, the point is that there's a lot i mean borderline personality disorder epilepsy uh dysfunction of social cognition maladaptive narcissism and on and on and on and on which just speaks to the the breadth of um the the research going on and and, and agrees with what you were saying jayhan about like it being such a good summary uh, another table that i really really enjoyed was figure two where they're talking about the historical use starting from six and seven thousand years ago and uh joe i'll pass you back the mic if, if you want to loop back to any of the uh the prior stuff uh from the first article in, in a sec but um so it starts six or seven thousand years ago and takes us pretty much to the modern era one interesting facet of this table was that they talk about three psychedelics renaissances, the first, the second, and the third, and we're in the third now. So I thought that was kind of cool. I hadn't seen or heard that. I, I use this term myself, psychedelics renaissance, about the modern thing, and I'm here in this modern moment. But uh, it was cool to, to see the historicals. Uh, his history has always been of great interest to me um, in this area as well. So, um, so that was cool. Uh, last table all... Uh, well... Okay, second to last table, I'll call out uh, table two. Uh, they go through a lot of the major research centers uh, and, and, and companies that are dedicated to this and the studies they're doing. Uh, we talked about Cybin already. Cybin's list might be the most impressive one. Um, so that's extremely cool. And, and everything I'm saying, they have references for all of this. So I mean, such a great resource for, for listeners who, who want to dig in further. Uh, the final one uh, that I'll call out uh, is I really enjoyed um, the fact that they were calling out... Sorry, I'm like literally just scrolling through this article so I can... It's pretty long uh, so that I can call out the correct table. Um, there is... Oh, I'm here. Uh, it's actually figure six where they're highlighting uh, the chemical structures of some tryptamines 
that are found commonly in these uh, psychedelic uh, mushroom species that are not psilocybin or uh, psilocin. Uh, these include baocysteine, norbaocysteine, originacin, and norcilocin. So uh, these are things that are of interest um, to, to folks who are digging in further than what does just psilocybin do? Well, it's similar to the thing we experience with cannabis, where an isolate is often found to be less useful than even two cannabinoids in combination or cannabinoids in combination with terpenes, flavonoids, other plant molecules, and so forth. So um, the fact that they're highlighting this in ongoing investigation of some of the lesser known compounds and their synergistic effects, lack thereof, whatever, is also of great interest. So um yeah, I, I, I was just trying to share. I mean, it's th 33 pages long, a ton of great information. I was just trying to like toss out some cool highlights, you know? No, I think those are some cool highlights for a paper that has over 260 references. Um, it's very thorough and, and definitely reading about all the institutions that are doing different clinical studies is, um, is really cool. And, you know, the table five has... Um, phrases from subjective experiences and firsthand accounts. It makes me think maybe these phrases should be incorporated into surveys. Uh, you know, Sarah Russo, you know, you've, you've been look like you're contemplating this article. Was there something that stood out to you in this article that you enjoyed? Uh, yes. I was especially interested in the fact that there are a hundred species of mushrooms that produce psilocybin. Um, and it makes me think about just the vast, amazing world that the fungal kingdom provides um, because if we think about, you know, just the psilocybin containing varieties and then, you know, all the different types of varieties of mushrooms out there and just the untapped potential that they have to benefit humankind and the planet. I think it's fascinating. Um, and one of the books I'm reading right now is called plants of the devil but it was talking about historically how uh, mushrooms were considered to be beings of the underworld. Um, and, you know, I kind of reject that evilness dichotomy, but I think it's really interesting to think about how, you know, mycelium grows underground and all these fungal networks are growing under the earth. And actually the mushrooms that we see are just the fruiting bodies and then all the things that are below the plant, the earth and super interesting to think about. Um, and you know, I always like to think about mushrooms and how the mycelium represents and looks like the nebula in the galaxy, looks like the neurons in our brain. And so I don't know, I just, I am in awe of the fungal kingdom. That's all I can really say. Awesome. Yeah, it is. It does uh, create a sense of mysticism. Um, you know, Joe, would you like to, do you have a follow-up comment? Oh, yeah. I just... I love what Sarah said about um, the Plants of the Devil book and just the way that mushrooms, uh, I think part of the reason why they're seen as more dangerous, uh, even though in reality, like the distribution of poisonous mushrooms versus non-toxic is uh, versus in the plant world um, is not, it's not like you're more likely to encounter dangerous mushrooms, but they're just, here and gone they're ephemeral that the, the fruiting bodies appear and disappear so there's like they're more mysterious and unknown uh it's harder to become familiar with them in the same way that you are with plants but i think it it just speaks to like 
how deep the relationship between people and fungi and plants is, um, even if there's no evidence for the use of, of psychedelics, uh, according to that first article we talked about. I think if that article had been about, like, if it had been titled, plant medicine use isn't as old as, as you thought, like, how ridiculous would that sound? Um, it's like the people had to have such a deep pharmacological knowledge of the plants around them um, throughout history that there's just no avoiding that, that connection. Uh, yeah, I think that's all some really good points. And this article also made me think about uh, how we gravitate towards the active components of different plants and fungi and how, you know, in the past people thought THC was the active component of cannabis and now everyone's obsessed with CBD, but really there are so many different components in these medicines that have potential properties that you may not even know about. So I, I think that's fascinating. And I had a question about this article for some of you that may be able to address it. Um, so I don't know if this is inaccurate, but it was my understanding that psilocybin was the compound in the dried um, mushroom and then psilocin was more present in the fresh mushroom. Is that the case or I'm not clear on that? There's a, um, there is a, like a maturation of the compounds of sorts over time. So there is, there is a reality to what you're saying about the levels of the compounds. And some of the ones I was saying, the minor compounds are also known to go up and down. We actually reviewed, Jehan might remember some of the specifics more than me, or, or we can, we can update you, uh, after, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say just simply psilocybin is, you know, considered a, a pro drug to psilocin in general. And so I think because of the stability of the compounds, you know, you don't want to convert them. You want to kind of keep it in the pro-drug state. But there are studies looking at psilocin and things like that. But generally, you know, you're consuming uh, psilocybin that then turns into psilocin, as I understand it in a, in a basic sense. I, I agree. That's exactly the second thing I was going to say about the pro-drug thing. Um, but Sarah, to your specific question, there's reality to what I was saying too, that the levels... Uh, in the plant will, ch or excuse me, in the in the fungi will change uh, over time uh, at different stages, including like you know fresh versus dried. And um, uh, we will send you the article because we did review an article specifically about storage of mushrooms and in the, the uh, changes in these levels over time. And there were actually some like strange results. So uh, definitely an interesting topic. And it, it kind of reminds me of like the fresh frozen thing in cannabis. Um, where people will, you know, they are, they claim they get, you know, better turp profile when they cut it down. They don't even dry it. They don't even cure it. And so they're after these different molecules. And I'm interested to see if that's a paradigm that will come up with larger scale, commercial scale production of, or of psychedelic mushrooms. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I could talk about psilocybin all day in this amazing article that we have included a link to the show notes in, but I want to get to our next scientific article. So we still have to play a little game at the end of the show. And that next article is from uh, the Canadian Urological Association, their journal, which published an article on the impact of cannabis use on male sexual function, a 10 year single center enterprise. And um, anyone who has not had sex or is a virgin, you must disclose this conflict of interest before we discuss the data. Um, 
But, you know, uh, we hear all sorts of things. Is cannabis, you know, its effects on testosterone? Does it increase it? Does it lower it? Does it increase sperm? Does it decrease sperm counts? Um, does it make sex better? Does it make sex worse? Do people just fall asleep after they use cannabis? Um, so it's kind of cool to see studies like these that have larger sort of N numbers um, and, and trying to figure out um, where is the data taking us as we improve our, our ways of assessing this subject matter? Because it's interesting, you know, lots of people are have access to cannabis and yet this effect isn't really well understood despite some of the anecdotal claims um, on, you know, cannabis effects on sexual health. So um, I'm not sure who to call on here, uh, but uh, Nigam, what did you think about this article? I know you, you love talking about N numbers and how many people are included in studies. Why don't we start there? I, uh, I feel like I'm like the article guinea pig, which I'm super comfortable with. So, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, I can uh, speak to that a little bit. Um, so their total... There was a few great things, like you said. Um, this was all from one center. Uh, it was over time. So we're already like removing some of the factors that we see in other studies um, that, that I'll harp on. So there were a total of 7,809 males included in this study. And of those... 12.7% or 993 were I were profile like defined as cannabis users. And then there were 6,816 who were not. So that's cool. Um, and someone else, please tell me if I missed a detail, but, uh, one thing that I couldn't help but think about is, uh, when we define a cannabis user, it's kind of, you know, what is the cutoff? What is the qualification? Is it, I have used cannabis in my life. I've used cannabis uh, in the last year, in the last month. Are you using it regularly? What products are you using? Are you eating it? Are you smoking it? Are you vaping it? So there's a lot of, I think, like details here that can matter. But um, just speaking to the numbers, yes, Shehan, this is perfectly satisfactory and I will not harp on the numbers. Um, I, I thought they're... Uh, their outcome, the finding, what uh, was was okay, but the statistical significance was not huge. It was not a huge variation. So, um, I'll, I'll leave it to to maybe Sarah to to comment a little more on the on the specifics. Yeah, yeah, and Sarah, you know, it's for this type of uh, research. Um, you know, it's kind of all over the place for humans. Self-reported use seems to, you know increased sexual pleasures associated with cannabis use, increased arousal, and even increased frequency. But when you look at some of the animal data, it seems to you know, impair that. Um, so what's going on here um, you know, in terms of, in your mind, in terms of this sort of data set and its effects on you know, sexual function? Yeah. So, you know, I'm all about animal research, right? That's what I do. Um, but when I, so I teach a course at Jefferson um, that includes a lecture on, I don't remember what I call it, but on reproductive systems or something. Um, and so in, pre in preparation of that lecture a few years ago, I was astonished by how much of the data that the lay person or other people will throw around, oh, did you know that cannabis does this or cannabis does that? how much of that was 
results of male rats being injected with humongous doses of THC as opposed to 25-year-old men smoking so many joints a day. Um, and, you know, a lot of that gets lost in translation with different things, and it's a real shame. Um, not, and again, not to say that animal research isn't important, um, but it is no substitute for the real thing if what you're interested in is the effects on human beings. Um, so you know, I was really happy to see the study. And as Nigam said, it's a very large study. They, they did a nice job in calling themselves out on some of the weaknesses. I thought they had a very nice section at the end on their limitations. A lot of the, the things that Nigam mentioned about not being able to quantify for how much they used. Um, it, was, it was interesting to me that the population that they used to study this is a population of men going to a fertility clinic because they're struggling with fertility. I found that to be a very unique strength and sort of an obvious population to look at. One thing they pointed out in their conclusions is that, isn't it interesting that only 12% of those men identified as cannabis users? That seems relatively low, especially if you buy into the notion that cannabis contributes to sexual dysfunction. That's very Well, they did screen out poly drug use, at least self-reported poly drug use. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's part of the reason why, you know, mm -hmm. the number was, was low. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so then that was another thing I wanted to point out. They also identify that the majority of the cannabis users also smoked cigarettes or used alcohol. That's always a tough confound, you know, to try to avoid with cannabis users and there are associations with cigarette smoking and with alcohol use with sexual dysfunction. Yeah. So, you know, I guess to make a long story short, I was very glad to see the study, the really large sample size. Uh, and I, lastly, I'll just say, you know, even to throw around a term like sexual function, that's why I didn't really know what word to use. There's so many components to sexual health and it's like everything else with cannabis, it's likely that there could be harmful effects on very specific components of reproductive health, and there could be benefits to other components. So it's very difficult to, you know, just say in general, cannabis is bad for male sexual health. Uh, and this, this paper highlighted to me, are you talking about, like you said, are you talking about sperm count? Are you talking about sperm viability? Are you talking about erectile dysfunction? Are you talking about libido? Um, so overall, I've had a very good read in a well-designed study. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I'm partially hearing from you, Sarah Jane, is that the study doesn't exactly provide compelling evidence against, um, you know, serious deleterious effects of cannabis use. It's, it seems kind of up the middle, like, well, there were some trends, but we're not sure how that might play out in a larger population. Mm -hmm. And definitely, I think it'd be interesting to include things like um, to know what other prescription drugs people were perhaps taking, uh, you know, legal medicines and kind of trying to suss out what are the associations there. Because maybe there's like a combination of cannabis and some other commonly used medication that could be good or bad as well. So I'm, you know, Kind of like you, I'm very interested in drug-drug interactions in, in this regard. Um, but, uh, you know, Sarah Russo, we'll go to the Sarah with an H for herbal, um, wanted to get your kind of thoughts on this article. 
um, if you had if you had questions you'd want to ask the researchers, and then and then we should uh, cut to the game. So this I didn't get a chance to go through the entire study, um, but I'd like to see more studies on women focused sexual health and how that grows. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Janester Wilson King and her research team conducted two parallel studies last year about the impact of cannabis on sexual function in men and women. Um, and I think there's a lot of room to really focus on women's sexual health because I feel like there's a big mental component to that. Um, and a lot of the products that are coming out that are geared towards sexual enhancement are actually with the women in mind. Um, so I, I don't want to disparage anyone's sexual health, but I think that there, for me, it's more interesting to think about the impact for women and gender non-binary people um, because I just think science takes a lot of focus on men generally. Um, and I'd like to see at least a, a little bit more balance. So if it's a sexual function study to include women to click, include gender non-conforming people as well. So that was my main takeaway for this. Uh, I think that's a great point. And particularly in this day and age, maybe being a little more um, inclusive or a little more pointy in, you know, what do we mean by sex and, and what are these cohorts look like and how do different groups endorse benefits or, you know, negative effects of these products. Uh, before we jump to the game, uh, you know, Joe, I want to give you a chance to respond, get your thoughts on this research. Yeah, I, I agree with Sarah. Uh, I really wanted to see a study like this focusing on women, um, especially because, yeah, there's so much uh, about, especially just with CBD. I mean, first of all, I was wondering where did they find 7,000 non uh, cannabis non-users. Um, but I remember like, uh, when I started using CBD more, just the flower, the hemp flower, uh, I was offering it to some friends and some of my friends declined because they said it affects their birth control. It like makes them have, uh, makes them have periods when they're on their birth control. And, and it has like these weird, and they've heard it from their friends. And so they're like careful about using about smoking uh, hemp flower, which doesn't have the same interaction with regular uh, cannabis. But I was like, wow, what is, what's that about? Let me look that up. And I couldn't find any studies on that at all about the interaction with birth control or, or with menstrual cycle, some stuff about like treating pain. But uh, yeah, I think there's that I would like to see more studies like that. And just like I guess the main metric they were using in this was testosterone, like serum testosterone levels, which is such a vague, uh, I think, measurement, like what the effect of testosterone is on the male sexual function. And um, yeah, I, I, it left me with a lot more questions maybe than answers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can talk about sex and drugs all day, but we need to jump to the game because we're running short on HLI time. So, uh, listener, we'll be right back with today's game.
At Marco and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. The name of today's game is Name That Drug. So I will summarize a case report about psychedelics, cannabis, or another commonly used substance. Then the participants must guess which drug from four choices. And remember, participants, it's not whether you guess the correct drug, but how you think through this game. So before you make your choice, I hope you share a little bit about your rationale. So this mystery case report is entitled Drug Overdose and the Consequences for Bipolar Disorder. This case report examines an incident in which a 15-year-old female who will call AV accidentally ingested more than 10 times the normal recreational dosage of this drug and subsequently experienced a significant reduction of symptoms in a previously diagnosed bipolar disorder, which included a history of depression. The overdose incident occurred during a summer solstice party uh, when AV was 15, where the supplier, it seems, made a decimal error when preparing the product. Specifically, what was intended to be a normal recreational dose of the substance, um, AV consumed the product at 10 p.m. on a em relatively empty stomach. Observers subsequently reported erratic behavior for the next six and a half hours, followed by what they believed to be a seizure as she was lying in a fetal position with her arms and fists clenched tightly. An ambulance was called at 4.30 a.m., and by the time the paramedics arrived 10 minutes later, she was alert and oriented. She was transported to a local hospital where she was diagnosed with a seizure. But the authors of this case report note that this is uh, what the witnesses reported, and the conclusion is questionable as subsequent interviews with AV and observers revealed no loss of bladder or bowel control, no biting of her tongue, no clonic movements in any limb, and only a brief period of confusion after the clenching episode. It was unclear whether she had a loss of consciousness or whether she was intensely preoccupied with her experience at the time. Although extremely uncommon, grand mal seizures after drug ingestion have been reported in the literature. AV's father reported that when he entered the hospital room the next morning, AV stated, it's over. He believed she was referring to the drug overdose incident, but she clarified that she meant her bipolar illness was cured. And that is a quote from the article published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. Uh, so, which of the following drugs do you think was responsible for this overdose incident in the generation of this case report? Was it A, magic mushrooms, perhaps in the form of a tea or an extract? Was it a cannabis product? Was it LSD? Was it perhaps you know, a DMT vape pen? So once again, your choices are some sort of magic mushroom extract, a cannabis product, LSD, or a DMT vape pen. Uh, I'm I'm ready to jump in on it. So yeah, so Nigam, how do you rationalize 
you know, maybe let us know your choice and how you got there. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do this thing I always do. I'm just gonna like start thinking through it a little bit out loud. So um the thing that's there's two things that are really standing out to me. One is something where you could easily make a decimal error uh 15 times. So you know, someone who's done a lot of formulation and a lot of weighing and measuring in the lab. I mean, 15 times, like, eh, that's kind of a lot. So, it, and uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is just this, uh, it would need to be a sub- substance to have a profound enough experiential quality or a certain pharmacological interaction that could result in a semi-spontaneous cure of bipolar disorder. So um, for me, of all the things I've ever heard about cannabis and people taking high doses of cannabis on accident, never heard that. So I'm (laughs) I'm not voting for that. Um, DMT vape pen is an interesting option. They are becoming more popular. But um, to clarify, uh, not in any regulated space. Uh, But once again, it's like, okay, so, but are you going to hit it 15 times instead of one. So that seems kind of weird. Uh, both magic mushroom, Jehan, especially as you said, like in a tea or in an extract um, or LSD, which is not always uh, uniformly dosed on, you know, uh, a, a blotter paper or whatever that that's something we see. Like, you know, you, you think about it as like, Oh, a dose or, or a tab, but that's not the reality is it's not always in such a uniform dose. So I, I guess I just out loud have narrowed. I don't think it's cannabis or DMT vape pen. I think it's either the mushrooms or the LSD. Um, and I'm almost leaning towards mushrooms because if you're going to make a tea, you're going to make an extract. If someone is doing it at home that that's not, you know, a uh, experienced individual or, or, or uh, a trained chemist, I could see them doing that. I could see them crunching the numbers wrong a little bit. I, I like I like what you're thinking. Um, um, anyone else want to jump in with with a guess? Uh, you know, Nigam, we'll come back to you for your final choice. Um, but I think that's some great thinking. Um, you know, Sarah Jane, do you kind of agree with Nigam's rationale? Do you have a question about the case report that I could clarify? I totally agree with Nigam's rationale. And the other thing that I noted, and again, not knowing as much about psychedelics. I was surprised at the timeline of using the drug, having the overdose effect, and then feeling fine. It seemed pretty short, especially for something that's dosed 10 times beyond what it should be. So I'm thinking I would also be looking for a drug with a really short half-life. So if any of you can speak to the half-life of LSD compared to magic mushrooms, I would pick the one that Mm. has a shorter half-life. They're not super different. And it's they're well, it's dose dependent though because we're we're on a totally different order of magnitude on the dosing. Um, <laughs> but Jayhan, would you would you agree? I think they're so far as a duration at a normal dose. One thing I don't know, yeah, at high doses, these it's variable. Last. It's that, very variable, and and I I would almost gather to say that you know based on observations and talking with people, when they talk about taking mushrooms, um, you know, containing psilocybin. Those tend to be very long and involve trips where, um, you know, there can be very long experiences with LSD, but it seems like, you know, they have an overlap of time. And it seems like given the variability, you know, mushrooms might last a little bit longer, just 
based on the discussions we've had, like with Dell Nigam and stuff like that. But yeah. yeah, I'm voting LSD. All right. That's also my my vote. Pretty confident about it. <laughs> All right. But I, I was going to guess MDMA if that was a, a, an option. Um, we could do a write-in if you want, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. After hearing Nigam and, and Sarah Jane, I think it's it's LSD. Uh, I think it's weird, Jehan, that you said that about the, the time window, because I think I always remember hearing mushrooms being described as slightly shorter than, huh. than LSD, but hmm. I think of all those, LSD is definitely the easiest one to miss dose, especially if you have it like in a liquid form. Um, and so that's actually a, a really good point, Joe. Um, yeah. And regarding cannabis, maybe it's a little harder to, you know, misdose that because you know it's it's, a, it's like 15 a, joints instead by 10 of one. times you know, the amount like I, I, yeah. oh i noticed yeah. i noticed you gave me 15 joints instead of one did like, you mean to do like that? you're not going to accidentally like load a pound into your pipe like one day <laughs> yeah. like oops <laughs> like yeah um okay great uh sarah russo um your thoughts on this case report i'm happy to you know add any clarifying language but again you know, was it magic mushrooms uh cannabis product, LSD, or a DMT vape pen? Is there one that's speaking to you? Well, I was trying to decide between LSD or mushrooms. Um, and I was thinking about the 15 times factor and I'm trying to conceptualize 15 hits of acid or 15 whatever. Yeah, I mean, they said 10 times the dose, but you know, we could oh. at least 10 times the dose. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, 10, 15 times, you know. What was the duration of the experience or the unfavorable? It seemed to last for about six and a half hours. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it gets a little hazy in the case report about what happened when she was transported to the local hospital, but she seemed to be alert and coherent um, and maybe able to walk and function after six and a half hours. That to me speaks more to mushrooms personally, but I the kind of rapid transformation piece for me feels like LSD. So I'm really on the fence between the two. I, it's hard to decide. I was thinking one other thing too about the dosing when we say 10 times as much, I wonder if it was a thing or let's, let's uh, imagine a scenario where it is LSD. Maybe like if a normal dose or a therapeutic dose is a hundred or 125 micrograms of LSD and maybe the person was trying to the person giving the dose was saying oh it's your first time or oh you want to have a, a shorter experience or just test it out maybe they were trying to give them 50 micrograms and then they gave them 500 or something on accident you know I could kind of see that kind of making sense with the mushroom thing well oh, anyways I'll um I won't let me it. let me you guys are okay to narrow it down I'm going to offer a hint and a very good hint, and I think the listener who maybe doesn't know very much about LSD and dosing or psilocybin dosing or cannabis dosing or something like that might, might appreciate this. But if I was to tell you it was in a liquid preparation that AV drank and then went around sipping what was left in everyone else's drink <laughs> of this concoction, mm. um, 
It sounds like over-enthusiasm was the real uh, culprit here. But the <laughs> yeah. thing is, I still can't tell. I still can't tell because, as Joe mentioned, uh, LSD is obtainable in, in a liquid. Uh, so that could, I mean, there could be LSD in the punch. Or uh, brewing mushroom tea is also a pretty common thing. So it's I, I your hint's not really swaying me one way or the other unless I'm missing something. Yep, that, that's fine. So there's also uh, Jay Hubble. That's a lot of tea, here's, though. Here's a here's a right. It's a normal tea. You have to drink fifteen. Here's cups a here's a write in. Jehan, uh, are we ignoring combinations? Right. We've talked about the you know the hippie flip, the Jedi flip. I, I'm assuming this is not a drug combination, right? It was not reported in the case report, but you know, um, speculation is always welcome, and you know that could have played an issue, or you know, been part of, been a factor in this too. Is there was no other. You know, and, and I'm thinking summer solstice party. Like, who some who celebrates a su- you know summer solstice party only uses one substance? You know, come on. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna close the guessing window in a little bit. So, um, you know, Nigam, what are you going with? Oh man. Um, or does the group want to vote? Your your thing. <laughs> it's it's so hard, man. Um, <laughs> Your thing about the the passing it around, oh man, that almost makes me want to vote mushrooms. Although before I really thought it was LSD. Can can I do half votes? Can I vote half and half? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have half a vote on LSD, half a vote on mushrooms. Okay. Uh, Joe, where are you placing your chips for the bet? I I think uh, I'm not going to do a half a vote. Although I do think that the Mushrooms is is a compelling one. I'm going to still stick with LSD. Are all in on LSD, Sarah Jane? Same. All in on LSD. All right, Sarah Russo. The same, I think, for the volume factor. Interesting, interesting. I, you know, and that is um, a great point you made about the volume factor. So, let's do the big reveal here. So, for those of you. Uh, listeners uh, who might have thought it was a cannabis product and this sounded like you know a very rational and, and probable idea. Well, it wasn't because it was not a cannabis product. For those of you who were thinking, well, maybe it was a DMT vape pen and they really inhaled pretty hard on that thing, uh, that's also not true. So for those of you who thought this definitely sounds like magic mushrooms, this sounds like such like the right answer. Well, it isn't. That's because in this case report published by the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs, this was an accidental overdose of the drug LSD. Ta-da! <laughs> so great job, everyone. And, and yeah, I thought you navigated it well, and I tried to make it a little competitive by throwing in uh, mushroom tea hints there. Um, but I thought this was a kind of an incredible story that um, you know maybe can highlight a couple lessons about LSD dosing for <laughs> for the listener. Um, so thank you all for playing the game. I hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, that, yeah. that was awesome. I uh, I I'm a little bit sad. My half a vote for mushrooms <laughs> went to waste. <laughs> well, you'll only get half a dose of a right answer. <laughs> I'll only control. Uh, what is the 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 reward is contributing to the advancement of science. So I, t- only, I halfway contributed to the advancement <laughs> of science today, only half. Well, well, thank you everyone for um, 
showing up today. I really appreciate it. Well, listener, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. Thank you to our trusty audio engineers. Thank you to our podcast cover artists. Read more about them in the show notes. And we look forward to um, sharing information about cannabis and psychedelics with you real soon.